Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David. Amanda's on vacation this week. This episode that we're airing today, we have a special guest, Matt Walsh, who is a partner at Castle Island Ventures. Matt, alongside his partner, Nick Carter, came from Fidelity, where they spent the last four years in a really special environment where they were able to battle test and experiment with crypto under the guidance of CEO Abby Johnson. You're going to hear from Matt talking about what they were doing there at Fidelity, which included things that they called scenario planning. Scenario planning included something called frictionless capital markets, where they would determine what the impact of crypto would be on the financial services sector and what that would look like in the future. Matt and I also talk about the news of the day. We talk about the recent raise of BACT of $182 million. We talk about what Castle Island Ventures is doing, investing in infrastructure in the crypto space. And that's including everything from key management, which you'll hear more about and why that's so important, everything to information and relayers and communications. You're also going to hear about a conversation that we have in regards to what we call permissionless blockchains and why that's important to Matt and Nick and how that's also going to be important to corporations in the future when the plumbing is great. You'll also get to hear a little bit more about Matt on a personal level, what makes him tick, what sports teams he likes, how he's a very big Pearl Jam fan, which I also enjoy. And you'll also get to hear a little bit more about what we think is going to happen in the future in regards to crypto. Are we going to have an asset class? Is it going to be a single asset? Are we going to be able to see smart contracts within Bitcoin, or is that something that's even needed right now? This is a wide-ranging conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed my time with Matt, and I look forward to more conversations with him in the future. And if you get the chance, please give us a review, subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and a host of other different platform providers. Tell us how we're doing, if we can make any other improvements. We've tried to do that with sound recently, and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Please remember that nothing on base layer should be construed as investment advice. As Amanda says, do your own research. On the flip side of this, you're going to hear from our sponsor, Lumina. Today's family offices and hedge funds lack appropriate technology to invest confidently in digital assets. Lumina provides institutional-grade portfolio management software specifically designed for crypto, helping institutions like yours manage, bookkeep, and trade digital assets. Use promo code BASELAYER for three months free. Sign up at www.lumina.app. This is David Nage. Our episode of Base Layer has a special guest with us today, Matt Walsh from Castle Island Ventures. How are you doing, Matt? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. I'm a fan of the pod so far. Awesome, awesome. 
Well, we wanted to – we have a lot to unpack. Uh, you have been really busy with Nick, and you guys have such an amazing story to tell, especially in regards to crypto and institutional investors. So what I wanted to do, aside from doing the traditional, you know, give me the crypto story, how did you find Bitcoin, I want to hear just a little bit about your, your backstory in institutional investing, but then I want to hear why you decided to go down this path. Not how, per se, and how you came across Bitcoin, but why you came across, uh, why you actually decided to, you know, kind of pivot your career into this full time. Yeah, absolutely. So my background is that uh, I was born and raised in Boston, a town called Milton outside of Boston. Um, And I was actually a management consultant out of college. And so I was down in uh, New York working for a management consulting firm. I went back to to business school from 2012 to 14. And that's really where my uh, journey sort of began. I was reading a lot of blog posts uh, from Fred Wilson and Chris Dixon right around the time that Probably Coinbase was starting to get funded. I was starting to notice that there was a lot of institutional interest in this. Read the white paper. Uh, joined Fidelity in 2014. And luckily, I was kind of at the right place at the right time. We were embarking on a, a scenario planning project, basically looking at a couple different views of what the world could look like 10 years from now and sort of planning out if that world were to come true, what would Fidelity have to do in order to remain vibrant and relevant uh, in that future world? One of the scenarios that we decided to look at was called frictionless capital markets. And and what it really meant was, what if this technology that allows for a peer-to-peer value transfer for Bitcoin were to be applied to the capital markets? And what would financial services look like uh, in that situation? And and how would Fidelity respond? And so that was really the, the journey for me and where I started to to dig into it. And I was fortunate enough that that became kind of a full-time obsession and, and a part of my job where I was very fortunate to, uh, to work on it. So I'm just – I really want to dig in more on this scenario analysis and this yeah. battle planning thing that you guys did at Fidelity because I haven't heard too many people doing that, especially taking a 10-plus year kind of view – what did you guys, aside from frictionless capital markets, what other kind of concepts did you guys talk about? Yeah, it's a great form of strategic planning because it really forces you to take yourself out of a multi-year planning budgeting process and really contemplate uh, and not predict the future, but lay out some trends and uncertainties and try to paint a picture of what the world could like uh, could look like under certain circumstances. Uh, so we looked at frictionless capital markets. Another one that we looked at was an artificial intelligence-based scenario, which really contemplated active portfolio management really being impacted by the rise of AI and uh, automation with our customer service channels. And so that was one that we also dove pretty deep into. Uh, there was another one which was a little bit more of a macroeconomic shock type of a scenario. We called it the vanishing middle class uh, or the barbell economy, some called it. Uh, and so this looked at whether uh, there could end up being a bifurcation of wealth in the United States with uh, kind of middle class being squeezed. And so it was it was a long list. And uh, the one that I oriented most towards was this frictionless capital markets one. Did you guys happen to coin the phrase back in the day? Short the bankers, long Bitcoin. Oh, we did not. <laughs> we did not. That was, that was a little bit after that. But, uh, yeah. So in terms of how you guys at Fidelity started learning about uh, crypto and about Bitcoin, I know you, you told me that you brought in a lot of experts. You brought in a lot of uh, thought leaders. And in my opinion, it's still kind of hard to say that there's experts in this space. Right. Um, but 
who were some of the people and what views did they take? Were they Bitcoin maximalists? Were they in the view that crypto and blockchain could affect lots of different layers of our society? What were, what were some of the things that they were talking about back then? So this was back in 2014. So this was before Ethereum launched. This was before this private blockchain hype cycle thing ended up being um, a part of our lives. And it was really just Bitcoin at that point. And so some of the first speakers that, that we remember, uh, Adam Ludwin was one of the first, actually. So uh, at the time, Chain had Chain. a great API uh, for Bitcoin. Uh, Adam came in and delivered this presentation, very rousing presentation to Fidelity about what Bitcoin is and presented some crazy ideas at the end of it. And one of them was essentially that Fidelity ought to custody Bitcoin on behalf of its customers. So it's kind of crazy to me to look back. I've you know, I've talked to Adam over the years, and I really think he was ahead of the curve in 2014 and predicting some of the opportunities in the financial services landscape. So Chain was one. Uh, the two others that I'd highlight, so uh, Greg Chavez from TradeBlock was another uh, really early participant, um, you know, TradeBlock being the order management execution and data company uh, based in New York here. So he was very instrumental in the way that we thought about things in the early days. Uh, and then the other one, uh, so the Circle guys, so Jeremy Allaire and Sean Neville uh, came over with their founding team and really presented the reason why they were starting Circle and where they were getting so involved. And I think that certainly got my attention, um, you know, Sh- Sean and Jeremy coming from the caliber background that they did, that it was, you know, it was more than just uh, some college kids in a basement starting uh, right. you know, to get into this space. And so that was eye-opening. And, and that was also the great thing about, uh, working at Fidelity, just that we did have that freedom to explore and bring in these guest speakers. So was, there's a long list, uh, you know, of other speakers: Gavin Andreessen, Vitalik, you know, Zuko. It's it's been a kind of a wild ride to be a fly on that wall. Wow, that's, yeah. that's pretty impressive. And so, I'm gonna kind of throw out a question here that we didn't necessarily talk about before, but you're coming from an institutional background, Jeremy, and a lot of people who have been building some of the wallets and the exchanges came from Goldman. Um, we have you know, some of the derivative uh, plays out there that are being run by people that came from Goldman. Why do you think institutional investors such as yourself, some sort of people of Goldman, such as people of Nomura, some of the other houses, why do you think they're flocking to this over the last year, even after a massive capitulation? So I believe that there is a a massive opportunity to build financial market infrastructure for these assets. Uh, And that manifests itself in a couple different ways, custody being a a big one of them, exchanges, trading technology, data. There is certainly a category of infrastructure that needs to exist, regardless of whether your view is if it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these other assets. Uh, We could all agree that we need better custody solutions. We need trade execution. We need data. Uh, and I think that that's a big part of the reason why so many talented people – I've never seen anything like the talent that is flocking into this industry right now. And it's not just from the tech firms. It's certainly from the financial services firms. Right. Yeah. There's. I saw a graph of the market cap going from $850 billion at the beginning of 18 to where we are right now, which is I think about 150 or so, give or take. And someone was able to put in specific times when I, either Circle raised a lot of money or you know, folks from Goldman decided to come in or you guys you know, announced your fund. And you, know, you see the price chart just continue to dip down and then all of these people are coming in and it's like, wow. You know? And then 
you know, as a family office investor prior, uh, prior, you know, kind of explaining it to these people and, and, you know, saying, okay, well, there's a lot of talent coming in. So smart people see something and it's not necessarily just about, you know, per se Bitcoin or some of the, the nasty news that you've heard. That's another question. So you're coming from an institutional background. Why do you think institutional investors like to harp on the bad news versus the good news? Yeah, that's a good question. I've gone back and I've read a lot of uh, history of other technology trends, other compute paradigms over the years. And I think you often do have these naysayers. There's this great Paul Krugman quote about the internet saying that it would be no more useful than a fax machine. And I think that that's... Uh, Whoops. Yeah, that's indicative <laughs> of what you see. And so I think with any new technology, there's uh, there's the temptation to dismiss it early. And Disruptive new technologies have the tendency of attracting nefarious people to them in their early days. I think you can see the same thing about the telephone, certainly the early Internet. Uh, there were certainly a lot of scams going on there. And so it's very easy to get distracted by that, and the mainstream media uh, doesn't do us any favors with that narrative. But I, we should acknowledge that there's a lot of bad behavior going on in this industry. And I think a big part of this ICO wave, a lot of these uh, you know, tokens will be deemed to be unregistered securities. And so there's there's reasons to be pessimistic about certain aspects of this market. But what we will see coming out the back end of this uh, will be transformational. And it already is. We're starting to see the, the early warning indicators. So we'll get into that down the road when we talk about Castle Island and what you guys are doing. But it sounds like ICOs are not necessarily where you're going to be going with that. Um, so <laughs> Not we'll, part of our plan. We'll, 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 we'll go further <laughs> into that. But why don't we kind of pivot into uh, you know kind of the news of the day, if you will? So some companies and some activity that has happened back just raised 182 million dollars, and some pretty prominent investors coming in from there, from Naspers and from Horizon Ventures, which is a family office for one of the wealthiest uh, people in China. Why do you think that's happening now? So th- the three recent announcements that I think are the most important for financial market infrastructure are backed Eris and then Fidelity's announcement. And so if you think about it in the context of what will it take in order for institutional capital to meaningfully participate in this ecosystem, two of the big problems to date have been that there had been no qualified custodians. And there's, you know, we still need to push a ways on that. That's not a solved problem quite yet. So with Fidelity entering with that custody product, uh, that will open some eyes, and that has opened some eyes. Now, if you also think about what else needs to exist, a regulated spot market for these assets is also very important. And if you read some of the SEC's commentary around why various ETF proposals have been uh, denied so far, it is because of the lack of spot market surveillance sharing agreements. And it is not going to be uh, okay to have you know, 80% of Bitcoin volume trading on unregistered exchanges. That, that will not be a conduit to get us to uh, these products. And so backed and Eris really represent uh, foundational infrastructure that will make other things possible. And it will allow, you know, certain capital participants to get involved that want to get involved that prior to this haven't had the chance to. So aside from backed and obviously Fidelity, you know, there's other news in regards to overstock. You know that's that was a you know publicly traded company that is now you know pivoting to crypto you know solely. What do you think is that going to be something that happens with you know potentially people like Square? Is that going to be something that happens in the future? I, I think that the most uh, 
the most cutting-edge companies are really awake to the opportunity here. And so similar to how Fidelity was very early in this in 2014, really felt like there was no other company looking at this yeah, space. Let's, let's, let's hit that again. Yeah. 2014. Right. One of the largest, I think actually the largest custodians in the world, what, it's $8 trillion under management or under something like that, 2014, <laughs> and we're in 2019. So they were at least four years ahead of the curve. That is just amazing. It, it is a remarkable company in the sense that it has a culture that is extraordinarily conducive to exploration of new technologies. Is that all under Abby Johnson? It is. Okay. Yeah, it is. And so it's a, it's a remarkable place, and I don't think that that would be possible uh, elsewhere. So if you think about that, I think we are starting to see other companies really wake up to this opportunity. I think you, so. You bring up Square. I think that that's a really important company. If you think about the uh, the Cash App and what that has done, and you know, adding Bitcoin to the Cash App, that's been a big move. Uh, Jack Dorsey is a personal investor in Lightning Labs, which is one of the most exciting uh, projects in this space right now. Um, and you also bring up overstocks. I think there's a whole different category of you know security tokens. I think a lot of uh, a lot of investors are being attracted to that space. I think it's you know, you'll find skeptics on the, on that as well. But uh, it's pretty clear that there are some market infrastructure plays to be had there if you believe that security tokens will be a you know, a thing. And and certainly overstock is building uh, an ATS venue to allow for the trading of these assets, and it's a big bet. So for the institutional investors and family offices that are listening, let's clarify what STO is. is you know, this, is, this has been talked about a lot over the last few months as everyone's kind of pivoted off of ICO mania, and now everyone's talking about STOs. Why don't you, for the listeners, why don't you kind of detail briefly what an STO is? Yeah, so it can mean different things to different people, but a security token – an STO is a security token. Uh, a security token – uses a blockchain backend to represent a, a security, so a registered security, so not a cryptocurrency. Um, that could be a, a deed to a piece of property. That could be uh, interest in a private equity portfolio. Uh, it could mean a lot of different things. They are being designed to operate within regulated financial market infrastructure. They are not censorship-resistant blockchain networks. They are not permissionless. Uh, they're all being contemplated, uh, some being built upon permissionless backends, but with a level of intermediation in them, which, uh, you know, some people like and some people don't like. Um, but certainly there is there is a hype cycle. I think the one thing we can say is that uh, there's beginning to be a hype cycle around these security tokens. It does remind me a bit of the private blockchain hype cycle yep. in, in some ways that we saw in 2015 and 16. Do you really think that we're going to see Tesla being an STO or shares of Apple? I already see this happening out there. There's already been some offerings I've seen come across my desk where you can you can buy you know shares of Tesla and Apple and, and Facebook off of off of doing an STO. I think it's possible. I think it's an idea that has merit and is worth uh, exploring. I think fundamentally there will need to be a customer appetite and there will need to be something that is solved through a security token that is otherwise not possible. Illiquidity. And right. And so I guess uh, there are some markets where they're illiquid by design. And so those markets, just because you introduce an STO, does not mean that there will be liquidity uh, coming to those markets. And so it, it'll be interesting to see where we see the first types of assets. Like where I see this most applicable is in when you're an LP in a GP, either a private equity fund or 
other of that ilk, and then you're you're in three or four years into it, and then you have a liquidity need, and then you would typically go to a secondary broker, and they will charge you you know under the sun to try to get ahead of that position. I see that as a potential real place where an STO can make a mark. I don't necessarily see why someone would want to buy or participate in STO to get shares of Apple. So I agree. Um, I think one interesting thing about the example that you bring up around the interest in a private equity or venture fund is that some of those transactions will have limitations in the limited partner agreements around the GP authorizing the sale of the, the asset. And so I think that we will need to figure out what those edge cases are and where it's not a technology problem. I, I think that there are some uh, some challenges there, but I'm confident that there are categories that are that are worthy of exploration. Right. So let's get into Castle Island a little bit more. Let's hear about uh, what you guys are doing there, what you're building there. Give uh, the listeners an overview of why you did it, what you're doing, and bring us up to speed where you're at today. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my partner, uh, Nick Carter, and I uh, had been running a similar uh, strategy at Fidelity. We have a $30 million venture fund. We're exclusively focused on companies operating in the permissionless blockchain space. And so uh, we are primarily looking at uh, market infrastructure plays. And so what that means to us is things like custody workflow, things like exchange technology, uh, things like data, uh, network data, market data. We view that as a foundational layer that will enable business models to exist that interact with these permissionless blockchains. And we believe that the impact of permissionless blockchains will be felt in a variety of industries once some of that plumbing is is built. Uh, and so we're a seed stage fund. We're going very early. We're writing checks, uh, you know, anywhere from two hundred and fifty thousand dollars up to a million dollars. Really trying to support entrepreneurs that are building with that vision in mind. And these are all equity deals. Yes, we're uh, primarily doing equity deals. Yeah, And so you're talking about the plumbing, and I've spent a lot of time looking at Web 1.0 and how that evolved. And obviously the plumbing was a major issue back then too. So communication lines, indexing data, structuring data. And so talk to the listeners. You know, Give a little insight into kind of where we are today. Can, is, there, is there plumbing in crypto right now, or are we dealing with something where you're using duct tape to kind of get information to and from? I think it's a lot more on the duct tape side, and it might be even before Web 1.0 in that analogy. I almost think it's uh, it's the protocol war era between TCP/IP versus OSI, and we haven't really aligned on which protocols are even going to power this next generation. But regardless of which protocol you believe in, and and I have my views on that too, uh, there is this level of infrastructure, and so key management is one that we're really keenly interested in. It's uh, how can you safeguard an asset and how can you interact with one of these platforms without losing your keys, without losing your assets? These are bearer instruments. And so that's one example where we just need better you know, interfaces. We need better product management in these categories in order to make some of this possible. Uh, another one would be network data. And so uh, Nick started an open source project called CoinMetrics, which is now a, a Castle Island portfolio company. It really started with the thesis that in order to understand these protocols, you need to interact with them at a very granular level. And so you need to be able to uh, run nodes on these networks to be able to pull data off of them in order to draw inferences. And uh, that's really important because you know, some of these protocols don't have anyone using them. Uh, they are just unused and they have extraordinarily high network values for things that no one is using. Many of them. Right. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll be honest, many of them don't. And so 
one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is this transference from a world where we were IP-based and then DNS happened. And then when DNS happened, it unleashed the power of the web. Um, and so when Berners-Lee gave us the internet in 92, um, you know, using all of those tools, that opened the ability for your mom and my mom to be able to go online and go to Amazon.com instead of having to know some sort of link and code and all these numbers to be able to find something. Where are we now as it relates to crypto? Are we still in IP, and are we going to get to DNS anytime soon? Yeah, I think we're early. I think that we haven't gotten to the, you know, a lot of people say we haven't gotten to the browser moment. We certainly haven't gotten to the kind of image in the browser moment yet, if you want to use mosaic. that. Mosaic, right? So that uh, that has not happened yet, but uh, – there's no doubt that something like that will uh, will be happening. I think we're pretty early. I think you know some of these protocols are still being contemplated, being formed. There's a lot of experimentation. I look at some of these projects as really just experimentations in new consensus design. And whether or not they actually work or not is, a, is an open question. There's pretty clearly um, a couple of platforms that are working, right, like Bitcoin being the best example of that, I think. Um, and so uh, TBD on, on where we go on the other ones, I think. As an FYI, I believe that Matt is a Bitcoin maximalist. So we're going to explain what that means too because <laughs> in, in the Twitter sphere and uh, other social networking channels, that is a uh, frequently used word to describe people that yeah, are very – Vitalik did us all a favor with that one. I, I would say I'm very open-minded to other platforms, but I think Bitcoin is very underappreciated. We'll see. It's got the biggest market cap. So um, I don't know how underappreciated it is, but um, – on that topic of protocols and also in relate to Bitcoin and to permissionless protocols, um, I've seen I, – I've, I've been – I consider myself a decentralist, whereas I do not believe that centralized systems can continue on because we're seeing massive failures. We're seeing our data hacked left and right. Our digital selves don't even exist anymore because they're being sold on tour. And so – you know, it's my opinion that corporations will need to start leveraging decentralized models um, to benefit them also so they don't have to pay millions and billions of dollars in damages. But I think that I've had to take a step back because I don't think that's going to happen overnight. And I don't think that's going to happen in the next year. And I don't think that's going to happen in the next two years. And so your, your, your position and Castle Island's position is on permissionless blockchains and so to get to scale, when do you think corporations will actually start leveraging permissionless blockchains? Yeah, it's a great question. And to build on something that you said earlier around decentralization, I I believe that customers do not yearn for decentralization. Customers yearn for better products and services that make their lives easier. And if those are decentralized, then they'll use those. And if they're centralized, then they tend to use those. I think that there are some – uh, some events that are going on now around central data monopolies uh, nefariously using our data and around breaches that will push people into the direction of prod products that are more provably fair. We'll call that smushbuck. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I think that that business model uh, around a, a central data monopoly is fundamentally imperiled, but it will not – uh, it will not fall until we have products and services that are just better and easier to use. Now, not to say that companies are going away. I think that there are ways for companies to start interacting with permissionless blockchain systems and make their services provably fair on the back end. So 
you know, giving uh, the customer an audit, uh, for instance, in terms of where their data is used and perhaps uh, putting a record of that audit on a blockchain. I'm just making that up. But uh, there will be interaction models where companies, you know, still can operate their their platforms. Um, you know, but to your point, I think this infrastructure around key management and the ability to get in and out of these products is just not there yet. So two years, yeah, I don't think we're going to be there in two years where there's like a Facebook rival built on top of a decentralized protocol. We're probably not there yet. Right. Yeah, I remember I was actually playing with something called Peepeth about a year ago. I remember ago. that, yeah. Yeah, they were trying to create a decentralized Twitter. And uh, the, the other thing, though, is that it's probably not going to be a one-to-one, you know, Twitter clone or Facebook clone that we're all talking about. If you had asked, uh, it had been really hard to predict the web browser, I think. Um, and similarly, I think the real breakthrough here will be probably something that doesn't look one-to-one like a, a web service, you know, web 2.0 platform. Um, and so we'll have to keep our eyes awake to what that could be. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is there is this notation in turn, and we're talking about decentralization and centralization. And George Gilder wrote a, a note in his book, uh, his recent book, and it was describing if you put all the data in one place and you tell the thieves where it, it is, they're basically going to get go and take it. Right. And so, you know, there's this notion that you know I was talking to my wife last mm-hmm. night about this is that you know I asked her I'm like how much do you pay for a Yahoo email account? How much do you pay for your Gmail account? How much do you pay for Google Maps? She's like, well, obviously nothing. I'm like, when it's free, who is the product? You're the product. I'm the product. We're all the product. And so, you know, to your point about better, faster, cheaper, you know, in terms of, you know, getting to crypto products that, you know, people like you and I and our mothers and our aunts, you know, want to be able to use, how do we break that monopoly of free it's a really good point, and and I agree with that wholeheartedly. That we are the products for some of these central data uh, services. I think key management is one. I keep on going back to it, but that's really important to to fundamentally change. Talk more about that because I don't know if people necessarily understand the the importance of that. What is it? Yeah. So one of the most interesting things about so start with Bitcoin, but it applies to all of these assets. Is that it gave individuals the ability to hold self-sovereign hold their money and so that is something that you know if you have cash that's one thing but uh that had not been possible on the internet before to be able to hold a bearer instrument that is your own money that concept uh is extensible to data and so uh, i believe that we will and the key management is really the way that you secure that asset and so um we are very keenly focused on companies that are building some of those products and services that can enable you to hold that data. Because I do think that we're going to live in a world where uh, you can permission off your access to your medical record to specific people and you can partition off uh, your identity on a a web service, perhaps a social network, uh, to various people and restrict it from others and to know who that data is sold to, to be able to monetize that data, to be able to, to get paid for the impressions that are uh, you know, they're seeing that data. None of it works, though, if you can't hold that data yourself and actually become self-sovereign over your data. Uh, and so that's a that's a plumbing issue, right? That's something that we just need better user interface design. It's probably not going to be, uh, you know, just memorize a passphrase in your head. There's going to have to be some, some product design there. Do you think biometrics run entering into that? I, I wrote this wonky uh, Medium article that I put out yesterday 
where I talk about you know people having sub cues, subcutaneous chips in their hands that basically automatically do that. I am very intellectually attracted to that idea. I, I keep on going back to that. Now I don't know if that's possible or if that's the way that that's going to work. Um, you know the the multi sig process that we have right now that you can do this with multi signature being kind of a you know a two of three. You know maybe you separate the keys and come together to sign them. What if one of those keys could be biometric? Um, that I think is a really interesting idea, and it, it to me it strikes that that would be simple to the point where some of these products you know actually can can get built at least from a user perspective, um, and so I, I am excited about that opportunity. So, do you believe we'll have an asset class in five, ten, fifteen years, or do you really believe, or do you believe? That will have a single asset, i.e. Bitcoin. Do you believe that we'll have other tokens in the market? Right now we have about 2,000 tokens. Mm-hmm. It's my opinion we're going to see a, a wash of that, a purge of you know at least 90% of that because it's just dead weight and they're really not producing anything. And so are we going to in the next few years see a burgeoning you know, asset class? Um, are you going to see in some of the things I've speculated upon, are we going to have like a DAO 30 where you have 30 constituents that make up you know, an, an index or an asset class that are just stalwarts? So I'll tackle that question in a couple different ways. I, number one is I don't think that we will live in a one protocol, one coin world. I, I think that there will be more than, than one of these. I think that there will be a power law distribution of protocols that are treated as non-sovereign money. And I think that the most dominant uh, protocol in that category will have an outsized advantage. I think that money has a tremendous network effect, and the, it is a winner-take-most type of a, a market. I think that we will have specialized protocols that do certain different operations, but the, not all of those protocols will actually hold value. People will not put their savings into those type of protocols and try to store wealth in them. They will interact with them potentially uh, but I am very – you know, this kind of goes back to the – John Pfeffer wrote a great uh, post or an institutional investor's take on crypto assets, which really, uh, you know, if I had to summarize it, is that there would be this kind of power law around money. And then many of these so-called utility tokens, they will not uh, they will not induce people to put their wealth into the platforms themselves. And so therefore, uh, as people switch in and out very rapidly, the value of those tokens, you know, would not be very high. Uh, not to say that they couldn't be used. So I, I think of the almost a market map of assets. And when you think of the, the most compelling categories right now, to me, it's you know the Bitcoin's category, which is kind of this non-seizable, uncensorable store of value. It's kind of bet on where we're going with a, a new digital gold. I think that there are some interesting projects in the uh, privacy-focused you know, category, TBD, on whether or not Bitcoin can implement some of those uh, you know, some of those platforms. And then you have this uh, really crowded, you know, if you want to call it smart contract platform category where there are a lot of big bets, a lot of big experiments, bleeding edge type of uh, projects where we'll see, will people want to store their wealth in those platforms? TBD, I think Ethereum, um, you know, you could find some Ethereum people to tell you that that's what they're using it for, but it's a, it's a different trade-off. So let's dig into that a little bit more. So <coughs> one of the things I'm, I'm curious about is, and some of the things I've looked at is, so with Bitcoin, you have RSK, you have IV, you have some early implementations or some attempts to add smart contracts. I know in Bitcoin, you have script. 
Uh, but the big thing about Ethereum is that the way that it came to prominence is that in it you have the ability to author smart contracts, which allow for <coughs> all of these different you know possibilities, all these utilities. And so within Bitcoin, do you see within the Bitcoin community a, a desire to add the ability to do smart contracts? Uh, certainly not at the base protocol layer the way that we're seeing in Ethereum. I think that the uh, the design philosophies of the two kind of projects are very different. I think uh, Bitcoin anticipates a, a layered approach to bring some of that functionality, and you see that with, um, with things like Lightning Network. Um, whereas Ethereum is taking bigger risks at the at the protocol layer, I think that there are uh, trade offs, and you know it's not a value judgment on on either end. But there is no doubt in my mind that that has been a big part of the uh, the attraction for developers to be able to go build on Solidity and you know to be able to do some of that uh, functionality. It's a great uh, experiment. So if we're talking, we're obviously talking to family offices, and a lot of the the audience is going to be the institutional investor. How would you get them? You know, we're we're still dealing with information asymmetry. You know, you and I both know because we've spent years, you know, kind of studying this, investing in this, understanding this asset class and this technology. What are some of the great ways for other people out there to start assimilating, getting to know what's happening? I think that just um, investing in education is still the best way to to ramp up to speed here. I think. You know, we didn't make investments for over two years at Fidelity when we first started looking at this space. It was really about rolling up our sleeves and in understanding this. We started a mining operation. We started building payment wallets. We put Bitcoin in the cafeteria. You know, we did user studies. We followed people around the city of Boston trying to get them to buy things with Bitcoin. We brought in guest speakers. We <laughs> wrote white papers. You know, we threw every possible thing against the wall. We brought in vendors to help us, you know, prototype things. I still think that uh, investing in education is the best ROI for an investor. Also, from a career perspective, I think that that is the best ROI. Yeah, it's again to be a fly on the wall at Fidelity when you guys were doing that. My goodness, you know, you're going to the uh, the cafeteria and, and trying to pay for a coffee with Bitcoin. My so goodness, there were some expensive coffees that were purchased. <laughs> um, you know, talking about Bitcoin a little bit more in terms of the speed of transactions, we've seen some folks, you know, out in the community boast about you know sending large amounts of of Bitcoin for small amounts. Where are we right now? You know, versus a year ago in terms of transaction speed, you know, one of the things that we, you know, people, you know, projects in crypto always get kind of benchmarked to is Visa and their TPS or transactions per second. And so where do you see the transaction per second game going in the next year? Yeah, so blockchain networks do not scale at Visa level at the protocol layer. That uh, that much I can guarantee. Um, the really interesting thing going on with Bitcoin right now has been the, the growth, the really quick growth of the Lightning Network. And so this is a, a layer two payments-oriented uh, protocol built atop Bitcoin that allows for smaller transactions and allows for higher throughput. Think of it as kind of batching and periodic settlement uh, down to the, the base layer to really simplify that. That has been the big story to me for the past few months. I think that will be the big narrative uh in the next year, just the, the continued growth of the Lightning Network. Again, different trade-offs. Some of these emerging platforms, blockchain protocols uh, that have recently conducted big raises are trying to do some of that at the protocol layer, trying to scale um, you know, to scale at that level. But uh, it's a different trade-off. 
So if I understand Lightning, and I've tried to understand this, as I'm not necessarily in the Bitcoin community, I am, but I'm not. Um, I, I think I try to look at all projects fairly, but within Bitcoin and within Lightning, if I'm not mistaken, Lightning uses something called a hashed time lock. And so if you can explain that a little bit more, why does that make it faster? Yeah, so I won't be able to explain it at the deep technical level, but the uh, the radically oversimplified uh, version of that is think of a, a butter bar tab. And so you and I would uh, open up periodic payment channels and we'd be able to route transactions to and from and around the network to uh, other nodes that we're connected to. And then we would have a periodic settlement down to the to the Bitcoin network at the base chain. We can do all of that trustlessly with the Lightning Network, which is really part of the big breakthrough is that we don't we do not need to trust each other, um, and that's the real kind of important thing to to realize that you can permissionlessly exchange that value and then settle down to the base chain. Yeah, and just to touch on that, some of the things that have been happening over the last year to two, we've heard about Lightning, we've heard about Serenity and the Ethereum network, we're hearing about zero-knowledge proofs. Again, to hit on the education standpoint, you have to spend time to understand what these are, and there is information out there. You and Nick produce a, a great week uh, weekly update on what's happening in the market. Other people are starting to do that more. There's a lot of information on YouTube these days. Uh, we're starting to see more sites come up where they're consolidating information. So, yeah, there's there's an amazing evolution. I think a lot of people said, okay, well, there is a lot of hype in 17. There was a lot of endorphin markets. You know, everyone was kind of jacked up. And then in 18, everyone got their face slammed. And But something happened in 18 where actual building happened because they saw that there was a there there. And so while, yes, the market came down, we capitulated, and the price of Bitcoin did what it did, there was still an amazing amount of building that happened, and there was actually a solidification. And actually, you know, people like you were investing in the infrastructure. And so it's an amazing narrative. Um, so I think what would be great, just to round this up um, as we're finishing up with Matt, is I kind of want to do a few minutes of, like, Getting to know Matt, um, Boston guy. Um, I hope to God you're not a Red Sox fan. I'm a Red Sox. I am a big Red Sox fan. Oh my God! Okay, <laughs> so, Patriots fan too. Okay, so I'm a Mets fan. So I okay. won't, I will not throw 1986 yeah, at please you. Don't. I yeah. will not start yelling out <laughs> Bill Buckner. Yeah. Um, but you know, tell us a little bit more about you know, kind of who's your favorite band, who's your favorite team. You just laid, you, you said that the Patriots and, and the uh, the Red Sox, and it's probably the Celtics too. <laughs> it is. It is. What is with you, Boston people? It's always it's always got to be. Boston proud. Yeah, I, um, I I love the Patriots. I've been very blessed over the past 15, 20 years to have Tom Brady in my life. And so it's uh, it's been a great run and really big fan of that organization. I wonder um, if Giselle says that every day too. Yeah. It's funny. Usually in a different context, people ask me what my, my hobbies are and it's usually paying attention to the cryptocurrency market. So I've never approached it from this uh, this perspective. But yeah, I, I grew up in Boston. I'm a huge fan of the, the local sports teams. Um uh, kind of a, a runner, so I, I was a runner at uh, Babson College and uh, ran on their track and cross country team. So that's a big part of my life too. Um, like to get out and and run with my wife and uh, yeah, we live in city of Boston and um, yeah. Favorite band? Favorite band is Pearl Jam. Wow. Yeah, are you, are you a Pearl Jam fan? I had my grunge period in yeah. the early nineties. I think you kind of stay with the band that you were a huge fan of when you were like seventeen. So it's kind favorite of Pearl Jam song. Uh, nothing man nothing man yeah i like daughter yeah daughter's a good, a good one. one yeah wow yeah, so like i've been to a lot of pearl jam concerts really yeah i've been to quite a few 
Interesting. Well, that's about it with Matt. Thank you so much for coming by and talking to us. And if you want to find out about uh, what Matt and Nick are doing at Castle Island Adventures, why don't you tell the, the listeners where they can go or how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, definitely. You can check out uh, castleisland.vc. You can follow Nick on Twitter. He's much more prolific than I am, uh, but I'm also yeah, we need to get you. Well. We need to get you more on Twitter, Matt. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, you got to play to your strengths. And that's not one of them. So, uh, but uh, yeah, check us out at Castle Island and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.